Hello, everybody. Uh, good evening. Welcome to Artist Space Books and Talks. Thank you all for being here this evening. Uh, I'm glad we can, we're going to start punctually on 7 o'clock, which is rare. Um, so tonight is the first in a series of four public evening events taking place as part of We Not I, a four-day convening bringing together artists, writers, curators, and thinkers identifying with feminist practices. Organized by artist Melissa Gordon and writer Marina Vishmit, uh, this project revolves around daily meetings focusing on particular topics, the first of which took place today, led by artist and writer Angie Kiefer. And we're very pleased to welcome Angie and writer Lynn Tillman for tonight's event that draws on some of the concerns that we'll work through today. So I'm going to hand over to Melissa very shortly just to say a few more words about We Not I to give a bit more background on the project. And after that, she'll pass over to Angie and Lynn. Uh, but firstly, I wanted to add a couple of mentions on behalf of Artist Space. Um, we'd really like to thank, uh, uh, extend a really warm thank you to, to Thea Westreich Wagner and Ethan Wagner uh, for their support of the We Not I project and also the Friends of Artist Space for their general support of our programs. And I wanted to also take this opportunity to alert people who might not be aware that we have an uh, Artist Space membership program, uh, which costs annually $60, or if you're an artist, it's just $40. Uh, and this enables free entry to all our events and guaranteed entry to our busiest events. Um, it is also really importantly uh, part of the way in which we fund all our exhibitions and programs at Artist Space something we're really trying to expand on how our members are kind of involved in that process. So if you are able to, to support us in that way, it would be great if you could sign up to be a member at the end of the evening. Um, so without further ado, I'll pass over to Melissa. Thank you. Um, thanks very much for coming tonight. Um, and I, Richard did a great introduction, so um, I'll just briefly go over the fact that this week at Artist Space, uh, which tonight's the first night, and today was the first day, um, is the second of two events. The last event took place in April and early May in London between South London Gallery, Raven Row, and Flat Time House. Um, and I've organized it with Marina Vishmit. Um, and I mean, the structure is that we're spending four days here kind of um, as a group of um, women artists, writers, and thinkers talking around um, conditions to do with we or um, what a we voice could be in a, in a generalized um, manner. So today we focused on the artist voice and tomorrow we'll be focusing on authorship or modes of expanded authorship um, and led by myself and Meredith Sparks. Um, and then in the evening, Meredith and I will give a talk tomorrow night um, and we'll also We'll, um, Ariana Rains will um, read a chapter from Chris Krause's upcoming book called um, oh, Libidinal, <laughs> Libidinal Madness is the, is the chapter. And then Ariana is also going to read from her poetry. And on Friday night, um, we're going to have a roundtable discussion with, um, led by Kathy Noble um, with uh, Joan Jonas, Judith Bernstein, and Dara Birnbaum. Um, and the daytime, we'll be talking about the legacy of second wave feminist um, artists and, and what it means now in terms of um, um, the, a lot of the renewed interest in um, that generation of artists. And on Saturday, um, um, the evening event is going to be, uh, the daytime event is going to be open to the public. And so there's going to be a full day um, starting from 11 in the morning, kind of onwards event, which will be a kind of um, talk um, um, 
led by Marina Vishmit during the day with Melanie Gilligan, um, Lise, um, I'm not gonna, I'm gonna pronounce her last name wrong, I'm so sorry, um, Saskolm, Sos um, and Sylvia Federici will give a talk that night. Um, so I think I don't wanna get into much more, but I'm here for questions afterwards, um, and I wanna hand over and say thank you, first of all, to Angie and Lynn. So honored to have you here tonight. Um, and thank you to Thea and Ethan and to Richard and to Harry and Artist Space, everyone that's coming, but I'm gonna stop there. It's uh, terrific to be here and to see all of you. Many more people than I expected on this surprisingly muggy night. Uh, maybe we'll have a great storm afterward. Um, <laughs> Angie and, and I uh, decided to do something to talk about voice. And it reminded me that I had written in 1990 or 1991 a novella called To Find Words, which was about and is about voice. Now, I haven't read from this in a long time. Um, and... There's so many different ways to talk about voice, but one of, one of the many ways is what, what is meant by a writer's voice. Now, I, I come from the feeling that there isn't a writer's voice and that the voice that I'm interested in making is, comes from the text and it's not necessarily the author's voice and there's not a consistent voice. Um, so, I'll just read you, uh, this is a, a longish piece, but I'm just going to read you four or five little pages. And then I'm going to read you the beginning of the novel I'm working on, just a few pages of that. And then Angie is going to talk about her work, show some of it, and then we're going to have a conversation and hope all of you or some of you might want to make comments or ask questions or generally engage. So we're trying to do something that is in relationship to what happened today. To find words, and the epigraph is from Freud, the mechanism of poetry is the same as that of hysterical fantasies. I have nothing to say. There is nothing to say is another way to say it. Or still another way, there is so much to say and so many ways. Should I begin? May I begin? Do I need to ask your permission? I promise you delight. I promise you a real good time. I promise you the best. This will be the very, very best. The best you've ever had. I'm a ride, a roller coaster, the fun house. I'm what frightens you in the palace of Hara. I'm pleasure. I'm a drive in the backseat of a car late at night when the moon is full and everyone else is asleep. I'm sex, I'm compassion, I'm the tears on your cheek when you say goodbye forever to that handsome but pitiful character in the movie you love. Now I'm anger and outrage, fire engine red inside your brain, I'm choking you with rage. I'm the pain that dwells in your gut which you cannot express to anyone. I'm the ache in your heart, it hurts, you hurt, you cannot speak, lie down, make yourself comfortable, adjust the light, I'll speak for you. That's the problem. 
And I could go this way or that, tell this story or that. I could seem to believe in words. I could pretend to believe in words and in the power of stories. I could insist I am a storyteller. I could take comfort in conventional wisdoms and make many references shoring up my position to defend myself to you and from you. I could hate words, distrust language, forego stories. I could do all this everything. I could use everything. I could try it all. I could, but I don't want to. I don't care, though that's not entirely true. It is partially true, and partial truths are, after all, what one must settle for. If one settles, I don't know about you, but I feel like hell. The country is falling apart. What does anything matter? People are dying, starving, being blown out of the sky. People are suffering, and what does anything matter? What difference does this nothing make? What matter do words make? When she awoke, she could not speak at all. I didn't let her swallow. She felt she could not breathe, her throat was dry. She drank many glasses of water. She went back to bed and fretted silently. Words danced in front of her, a ballet that no one would comprehend. This word partners that. She could not swallow that damned fucking horrible lump in her throat. It's not the first time it happens often. Such a weird sensation. It's terrible that I am her voice because she depends on me. She is to be pitied. She looks sad lying there in her mother's nightgown. Her mother is dead. Suddenly she sits up, put, puts a note back, notebook on her lap and finds a pen on the floor, the pen she threw away last night. Oh, last night. She writes in her notebook. Her other hand is wrapped lightly about her, neck, her throat as if she were gagging herself. And this presumably is something that she's writing. The body has a mind of its own. The mind speaks through the body. The body speaks its mind. The mind has a body of its own. And then more. To write a story is to be in a state of hysteria. Writers call up from their minds and bodies. I don't make a separation. Memories, ideas, fragments of thought, images. The fragmented story is symptomatic and like a symptom of the hysteric who cannot retrieve the whole, it is stymied by a regrettable and important loss from a particular scene that would make the story complete. But even the narrative that we think of as well-formed, the traditional narrative, with a beginning, middle, and end, that too is of necessity a fragment, which the writer to counter loss is impelled to produce. All writing is hysterical. The body always speaks." End quote. This was the voice that Paige Turner initially chose from many possible voices, I might add, to begin a story about hysteria. She had studied and studied, thought and thought, and from all that she had read and from all that was in her, so to speak, Paige decided to sally forth with a jab at the problem of writing itself. It is one possible approach. Sally, go round the roses. It doesn't seem to me that it is exactly the right voice or precisely the right way to begin. The first line of a story is like the first impression one can never make again. And you never get a second chance to make a second or first impression. I'm not completely sure, and neither is she. And it is this that I have reminded her. Is this your voice? Couldn't anyone else have written this? Who is speaking, and of course, who cares? 
Paige Turner is a tall woman with bright red hair. She is a petite woman with jet black hair. She is of middling height, has blonde hair, and is known to diet strenuously and laugh loudly. Today her cough is constant. She hates what she has written. She will not begin her story that way, but it will plague her. Paige worries that the ideas she thinks urgent won't be understood. On the other hand, overstatement worries her more. She thinks this and glances at her other hand. There is dirt under two of her nails. Red polish peels off both thumbnails. Her hands look injured, as if they'd been to war. She will apply more red polish to her short, dirty nails. One hand is shaking. This is beyond her control. When Paige was just a child, she would shake at the kitchen table, shake her leg so vigorously that her father would joke, Will that be a chocolate or a vanilla make milkshake? Paige shakes her head to forget the moment and his expression, what he said, as well as the look on his face, a look of bemusement, mockery, or tenderness. The look that she remembers, the look that she invents again and again, is a jumble in her mind, which she thinks of as a kind of messy store where her trinkets and junk are displayed, where other people's souvenirs, other people's pasts are represented all as small objects. Precious memory, her throat hurts, she swallows hard, she cannot speak. I call her little misunderstood. Naming is everything, sticks and stones will break your bones and names will always hurt you. Names will make you cry. A comic and ominous taunt to little Miss Underwood sitting at her Underwood. On days that are wet and gray and, or on bright blue ones, it drives her crazy. Mad, whack, nuts, bonkers, apeshit, and so on. I drive her out of her mind. She wants to do the driving herself. She walks back and forth, mumbling aloud, speaking to herself. She tells herself that it is a mark of intelligence to talk to oneself. She read this in a popular psychology column written by Dr. Joyce Brothers for Vogue magazine. She takes comfort in such reassurances. She sits at her desk, pulls at her hair, jerks her leg, and sorts through paper. She opens books and stares into space. She looks at old photographs of herself and her family, of lovers and friends. Sometimes she imagines she is staring inward, as when she pretends that the outside is the inside. Have you ever tried that? At other times, she gazes at the pictures on her walls to reinvigorate her mind to catch herself unaware, to startle herself with new meanings. There is a lump in her throat. Quote, I look for a hair that might have lodged between my lips when eating. It has been swallowed and sits in my throat, tickling me, tickling my fancy. I have eaten hair. Disgusting, disgust, it's interesting. Voices can be disgusting, insinuating, dirty, a story, a voice from the past. I will tell the dirty old man story. Every woman has a dirty old man story, end quote. She is hoarse, her voice deep in her raw throat, but she begins to write, which I think takes, which, <laughs> it's okay, which I think takes pluck, shows stubbornness, or demonstrates a kind of silliness, a deep silliness, deep in her deep throat. I ought not trivialize the task before her, but how can I not? I remind her how foolish she is. She glances at the ceiling, distracted. She touches her throat and coughs. She calls to me her disembodied voice, be still, lie down, rise up, die, live. 
quote, she was sick to her stomach. The bus ride was supposed to take five hours, but it was raining and the slick roads caused the driver to go slowly. Time was dragging, moving along with the labored swish of the window wipers. Time was dumb and slow. She liked buses better than trains because the lights were always off in buses if you rode late enough at night. She was returning to college. She'd eaten so much during the weekend at home that she could barely move. She opened the button at the top of her pants. Her mother had made a chocolate cake, which she'd finished when her family had gone to bed. She vomited in the morning, but she knew she'd gained weight anyway. The man next to her stirred. He'd been sleeping since the beginning of the trip. Now he was awake. He was old, and his face was covered by stubble. He was fat, too. He started to talk to her. He was, ran a fast food chicken place on 2nd Avenue. He asked if she'd ever been there. She said no. She was glad to talk, even though he was ugly. In the light, he would be even uglier, so she was glad it was dark in the bus. After a while, sorry, after a while, she didn't know what else to talk about because she didn't think he'd be interested in what she was studying or the fact that one day she was going to be a writer. She was too self-conscious to say any of it anyway. It seemed stupid. My story goes on a little too long. Anyway, that story ends and the voice comes back. <laughs> I disgust her. She returns to bed. She is discontented. The story may not be right. Voice off. Unsure, she shrinks from herself. She is too little to live, to love. She is too big. There's no time to be content. I disgust her. The hair tickles her throat. Her fancy, her fancy is a lump in her throat. The saying, I have a lump in my throat, is used generally, in English anyway, when someone feels a great burst of sad... <laughs> okay, maybe it's another voice, obviously. The saying, I, I have a lump in my throat, is used generally, in English anyway, when someone feels a great burst of sad emotion. Emotion seems to swell and get stuck in the body. Odd though that may be, the swelling becomes physical. Something is stuck in one's throat. Often I become a thing in her throat, as if she'd swallowed a great obstacle and it lodged there. I don't mean she actually swallowed an obstacle. I mean I am the lump in her throat, which is an obstacle. As she writes the dirty old man's story, she loses her voice, a case of laryngitis. She cannot speak above a whisper. She wonders if her loss is also her gain, one voice for another. She wonders if she is a whispering woman. She coughs. So that's just a short, some of the beginning of this novella I wrote. There are three-page Turner novellas. This was the, the first. And then I gave her up. She no longer exists, even in my mind, except on the page. And I, I thought, just to finish, I would read three and a half pages from this um, novel I'm working on, which is called Men and Apparitions. And uh, it starts with two quotes. One is from Rabbi Abraham Heschel from a 1965 speech. He said, we must learn to be surprised. And the other quote is from Flannery O'Connor. She said, mystery is the great embarrassment to the modern mind. Prologue. The end doesn't depend on the beginning, it upends beginnings, also provokes new ones. If the end comes, it's to one person and could spark beginnings in others. 
The beginning starts in history, not as a single event, though every birth is singular. Death is a singular event for all individuals, though death and the dead live on in others. And that's from my character, Ezekiel Stark. Book one, self-narration or wildness of origin myths. The universe heaves with laughter and I'm all about my lopsided self-defining tale. How I came to be me, not you. How I'm shaping me for you, the way my posse and other native informants do for me. How I'm shape-shifting. I'm telling you that I'm telling you. Myself is my field and habitually I observe and write field notes. Ethnographer, study yourself. Ethnographer, heal thyself. There was a no time with timeouts a long time ago, way before now, space and time on a continuum bend in relationship. And I imagine that soon I will, in some sense, return to the past whenever I want. Routine settles, creeps in. I've performed the same acts for 38 years, like eating breakfast. You were eating breakfast, you have been eating breakfast, you are conjugating breakfast ever since your mother set food before you. And now you're feeding yourself only if you shop for it. Or maybe you went back to the land to raise it. But not everything, you don't and can't raise everything. I was damn fortunate, meals appeared regularly. I'm no ingrate, that was part of my home. You were spoon fed and it landed plop on the floor or you, the baby, threw it, bad boy. Throw a tantrum, make a mess, soon you have to clean it up. Break it, buddy, it's yours in pieces because you are responsible. And true, things go to pieces when not actually broken. Abstractions get broken, ideas get broken. I have seen the best minds of my gen talk about the flawed life, totally. Going to sleep, that gets tired, ha, huh? the regularity and boredom might cause my chronic insomnia. So it's cool when you don't know you're falling asleep. Then you wake up and the TV is on. You open your eyes, weird. To dream becomes the best reason to sleep, especially if you do, I do, conscious dreaming and get to choose. A dream becomes a podcast or a movie, otherwise nightmares pit REM sleep with terror. I listened to a podcast of an old TV news program and heard a Soviet and Russian historian, Stephen Cohen, argue with a total jerk. Completely exasperated by the fool, Cohen finally said, with all due respect, you don't know what you're talking about. I swallowed the moment like a hallucinogen. That's so fucking rare. It tears up Max Weber's cage. That's my goal, to tear it up, me especially. I don't get high anymore. Antidepressants keep me sort of level and don't combine well with recreational drugs. Living drug-free is a sort of high, except clarity can get ugly. My analyst suggests that I elongated my kidhood by delaying leaving home. No big deal, really typical. My mother was a permissive parent, finishing college in the mid-60s, and didn't want to parent like her uptight parents, who let her know she was on her own. Mother had a small trust fund from her maternal grandmother and did an MA in English, then met a man who became her husband, my father, and started a family, as they put it. Father didn't drink, I mean excessively, they had us. Spacing bro heart and me, then an accident, little sister, she had to have been. Father, I don't know what his wishes were, but I don't think he fulfilled something in himself. Anyway, he became a functional drunk. Mother kept loving him, maybe, takes all kinds. He was absent for me, hooked up to his necessaries like to a breathing machine. 
I come home after school or tennis lessons, walk over to the couch, and his watery eyes were just pools. Staring at photographs of him when he was young and I was young comforted and bothered me. Here was evidence of a bright-eyed guy beside the dull living person I knew, and it was discrepant, though I wouldn't have said it like that then. But I couldn't put the two together, didn't compute that the boy had turned into this man, my father. In childhood, desires and passions are seeded. In adulthood, they flower into interests and mania. My frame of reference is cultural anthropology. Clifford Geert says that doing ethnography is like trying to read, in the sense of trying to construct a reading of a manuscript, that, quote, culture is public because meaning is. I do ethnography by working with photographs and an absorption in images in various contexts with the many forms and senses of image, creating, creating an image, loving an image, etc. My specialty has been family photographs. They don't mean as words mean, though people and I apply words to them. Photographs can create images, but are not images per se. They are things, a physical object. An image doesn't have to be based on a photograph. It is a mind picture, or an image is a picture in the mind. A photograph may inspire or foment an image or images. An image is a concoction. It can be airy-fairy, a phantom, phantasm. I take a photograph, I don't take an image, unless I'm a vampire, ha-ha. Vampires don't look like the ones on TV. The living dead are regular people who suck you dry. A mind is not a brain, or a brain is to a mind what a photograph is to an image. And they can be conflated, brains and minds, images and photographs, and sometimes I do it too. Thank you.